1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about we are what we think. You've heard of you are what you eat. Um, Maybe you've heard of you are what you watch. That's what I uh, strongly believe. We also are what we think, and um, in today's increasingly technologically driven world, it's hard to think anything. I mean, I guess what we think is uh, are all those noises coming from the computer or or the um, sounds that we've programmed our phones to make. Uh, it's it's kind of like robots, you know, making those kinds of of noises. Um, and that's what's what's drawing our attention. I mean, how many of you? I know this is true for me. Um, if you have your computer set to make a noise, or well, even with a smartphone and, and um, uh, a um, a text, you, you we we become like Pavlov's dogs. You hear the bing. And uh, you either look up, you know, on your computer for the, the email that's coming in, or you look to your smartphone for the text that you got. Uh, you know, how much thinking are we doing at all these days? And it's a very sad and very dangerous state of affairs. Well, today's guest, James Kingland, is the author of a new book. In fact, it's very new. It's coming out just today. And it is called Sid Arthur's Brain. Um, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. And um, Mr. Kingsland thinks that, um, in fact, the answer to our uh, crazy and technologically driven society is becoming more like Siddhartha, who is actually uh, then became known as the Buddha, and um, to start really practicing everyday mindfulness and meditation words that I'm sure most of you have heard, but um, that I would venture to say, (laughs) few of us, including myself, I mean, I have dabbled in meditation, but I guess dabbled is the more appropriate word because, uh, you know, I get up in the morning and I think, oh, my God, I have all these things to do. Everything comes rushing into my mind about what I have to get done for the day. And meditation somehow gets to the bottom of the heap. And I'm realizing through um, starting to read uh, Mr. Kingsland's book, uh, Sid Arthur's Brain, that perhaps it needs to get to the top of the heap. So, without further ado, <laughs> James, and we're talking to James from London, um, where he is a, a science and medical journalist. He has written for such publications as New Scientist, Nature, and um, recently, or most recently, he is the uh, Guardian Science Editor. So, James, welcome to the show.
3: Hi. Thanks very much for having me on your show, Carol.
2: Um, why don't we start with giving sort of a an introductory um, uh, an introduction to Siddhartha, aka Buddha, and how he? I was reading what you wrote about. He was a, a homeless man who. um, who started on this, developed and and created and started on this path of enlightenment, I mean, you know, centuries ago. um, How did all of that happen?
3: Well, that's right, that's right. Um, He he started life. uh, He had a very privileged background. He was part of a a rich, governing family, and um, all his needs were catered for. Um, So uh, he was well-clothed, he was well-fed, there were... Uh, sensory, sensory pleasures for him to enjoy. He had status in society. You, th- you think he, he had the perfect life. He had anything. He had everything. All, all the things that we, we crave for. Uh-huh. Um, and yet, he felt this nagging sense of dissatisfaction. And um, in fact, um, his father did did his utmost to um, to protect him from anything unpleasant. Um, and he succeeded for for many years until um, Siddhartha was, um, um, I believe he was uh, 29 years of age, according to the story, before he encountered sickness, aging, and death for the first time, which is quite hard to believe. But that's how the story goes, anyway. And, and this um, was
2: in India, of course.
3: That's right. This, this was 2,500 years ago in ancient India, in northern India near uh, what is now the border with Nepal. And um, uh, his father as I say, despite trying to protect him for all the, from all the unpleasant things in life, finally these things encroached on uh, uh, uh perfect life. And um, he realized that there, there was no escaping from sickness, aging, and death. And he also realized that um, uh, his experience of life, all these pleasures he'd been enjoying, were ultimately unsatisfying because um, they weren't permanent, um, and we can we can relate to that certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, all our the things we enjoy in life they, they don't last very long. We um, we crave them, we, we get them, we enjoy them, and then there's a there's a sense of dissatisfaction, and, um, and so the cycle starts again. Mm-hmm. And um, so he he abandoned his his comfortable home life and embarked on a spiritual quest to um, to uh, discover enlightenment to to find some way out of this trap this trap of existence this this constant cycle of um, of craving enjoyment and disappointment and uh, and the ultimate reality of of sickness aging, and death and um, he spent six years in in the wilderness um, almost starving himself to death in fact, uh, but finally um, he um, uh, ha- having, having, uh, having uh, uh, sat at the feet of a, a couple of meditation masters who, who taught them all, all, he, all they could, but um, failed to uh, truly enlighten him, he finally um, discovered enlightenment for himself. Um, he sat down under a under a tree and and uh, determined that he wouldn't get up until he d- he discovered the uh, the answer to this this. Uh, this question, this, this uh, thorny question that faces all of us. And um, he succeeded. And, and the result, um, or one of the results, is, is this uh, science of mindfulness, which uh, we're enjoying the benefits of, of today.
2: Well, okay, well, take us, I mean, how are we, how did it get from his discovery of enlightenment to, to the rest of us knowing about it?
3: Okay, well, this is a tradition that has been passed down through uh, generation upon generation of uh, of monks and nuns who've who've been practicing uh, 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 the same uh, thing as him for for all all this time. And, um, in fact, um, uh, it was uh, in in the 1980s, a guy called John Kabat-Zinn, who you may have heard of, um, he practiced... um, Zen, uh, uh, Zen meditation under some uh, Zen masters, and he decided to um, to adapt it for use in a clinical setting, um, because um, uh, the Buddha's teaching, uh, his key teaching, is about um, is about suffering, our experience of suffering. He compared it to a man who's hit by two arrows, two poisoned arrows, and the first one is the uh, the physical sensation itself, whether whether that's of uh, of craving or pain, and uh, the uh, the second arrow is is the way we react to it, our our emotional reaction, the way the mind uh, picks that up and runs with it and obsesses, and uh, we have thoughts like, uh, oh, "This is terrible. Uh, why me? This is never going to end. Um, my life's terrible. It's, everything's over." And so that's the second arrow. And the Buddha taught that we can, we can pull out that arrow, we can extract it through, uh, through mindfulness, through um, pure awareness of the present moment um, in, a, in a non-judgmental fashion. We can extract that arrow, and by doing so we can save ourselves uh, a load of suffering. And this is essentially what John Kabat-Zinn uh, adapted for the very first... Uh, my clinical mindfulness course called Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction which you've probably heard of and uh, the first people to benefit from him were suffer- from, from this course were suffering from uh, chronic pain and, um, and so the, the scientific research started and over the years it's, it's built up and the, the credibility has grown and um, just uh, a few months ago there was a piece of excellent research showing that mindfulness can help uh, people suffering from lower back pain, so um, it 's fascinating this this um, uh, this train goes back all the way two and a half thousand years to uh, to ancient India to uh, a guy sitting underneath a tree uh, trying to figure out where what was causing all his suffering
2: Well, now, can you um, define the difference um, between meditation and mindfulness
3: well. Uh, mindfulness is something we can bring to to every activity what, whatever we do we can we can do mindfully um, uh, meditation is is a more formal practice um, uh, a part of the day we set aside to to sit down and, and calm our minds um, but the um, what happens is the practice of meditation um, facilitates uh, mindfulness in in um, it uh, builds up rather like um, building up a muscle when you go to the gym it it builds up the mind 's uh, capacity for focusing its attention on the present moment on mm-hmm. a particular stimulus um, and uh, returning the attention to that stimulus whenever the mind wanders and um, so this this faculty of of mindfulness is is developed through meditation, and then we can bring it to to uh, whatever we do in in life to uh, to ensure that we're more we're more present, we're more focused, um, and uh, we, we're we we're there for other people, we're there for ourselves, and we're not so so distracted. You talked about um, uh, technology. Well, uh, mindfulness helps us to overcome uh, some of those distractions, to uh, to uh, rise above them. Yes,
2: yeah, so, um, well, yeah, if that that does. You, you can uh, understand how. Y- doing practicing meditation. I mean, I like that example that you gave of building up a muscle. You can because if you're if you're in order to um, properly meditate, you have to be super present. And so if you're doing that when you're meditating, then it's uh, a lot easier to bring that to whatever it is that you, other things that you're doing in other situations.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's it's simply the faculty of of, of paying attention and and noticing when your mind is wandering—that that's really the key. And a lot of people, when they're starting out meditating, they get discouraged. Um, uh, I've 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 spoken to people who said, um, "Oh, I tried that years ago, and um, my mind was all, all over the place. I, I just just couldn't do it." And um, in in a way, uh, the fact that you're aware that your mind is all over over the place—that that's progress. That that's the that's sign of progress. So. Um, it's, it's worth per- persevering and noticing is, is, is an essential element of uh, developing mindfulness.
2: Yes, that is a common complaint. And certainly when I, the, whatever the times that I tried meditating, that was the first um, problem, you know, too. And I think also um, the more, you almost, have to, <laughs> you almost have to have achieved the inner peace That meditation and mindfulness are supposed to be bringing you to, to be able to meditate. Do you know what I mean? Um, In other words, the more anxious or depressed or distracted or you know all these other emotions that you have um, when you're trying to to let these thoughts um, go out of your mind and just and just be present in meditation, um, you know, you would be able to. You know, it's kind of a an irony or a vicious cycle that. Yeah, yeah. That,
3: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sort of. It seems to be a, a kind of Catch Twenty Two. Yes. Uh, the way you you sit down and you try and meditate, and straight away all all these anxieties and uh, worries come up in in your mind. Uh, uh, whether it's anger or guilt or all these strong emotions come up, and um, um, it's just part of the practice. It's 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 that's how the mind works, and. Uh, the the real the objective is to to learn to um, to notice these things to to uh, to go you know to go halfway to meet them and experience how does it feel in your body how does it feel in the chest how does it feel in your gut so that you 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 experience these things fully but you don't uh, you don't become um, uh, mentally involved if you see what I mean you don't um, intellectualize them uh, you simply experience them uh, as they are and the remarkable thing um, that the, um, the Buddha discovered was that um, um, if you don't um, uh, feed these, these emotions if you don't feed them with, uh, with uh, these, uh, these thoughts and uh, um, these elaborations, these judgments that, that we naturally have um, it's like a fire. If if you stop putting fuel on the fire, um, eventually the fire dies down, and um, uh, that's what that's what he he discovered. Uh, whether it's it's pain or or anger or craving, if you don't uh, feed the flames of those fires, they'll uh, sooner or later they'll they'll die down of their own accord.
2: Yes, uh, you know when you think about him sitting under a tree. Um, I mean that took such incredible discipline, especially. I mean, um, he did have some guidance, as you said, from uh, whatever the, the teachers were able to teach him at that point about meditation. But I mean that that's really um, uh, that's really creating a very. Um, a very firm or a very, you know, putting yourself under circumstances where you sort of have to, if, if that was his, you know, since that was his goal, you have to, there's no distractions, in other words. He's just sitting under the tree all by himself, and no one's going to come around and, and distract him. So it's very, um, you're alone with your thoughts, and, and, um, and I guess trying not to feed these thoughts. But it was very strict circumstances is what I mean.
3: Absolutely, yes, and the, the natural temptation is to to try to um, to wrestle with the thoughts, to sort of um, um, try and uh, face them down or sort of uh, yes. to uh, combat them, but in in a funny sort of way that that only makes them worse so it's all about acceptance, about um, um, coming to terms with with the way with the way the mind works and um, not getting caught up in in those thoughts and emotions. Uh, so it's something that's quite difficult difficult to to explain to somebody uh, starting out. But um, through experience, you realise that the um, uh, best way to um, to to handle difficult emotions is to um, is, is to open yourself up to them in a, in a funny sort of way. And the same with um, with pain. If you open yourself up to it without elaborating on it, without um, getting caught up, caught up in it, without um, uh, thinking about it, um, you find that um, it brings peace to your mind. Even if the pain is still there, you feel a sense of peace and acceptance as uh, well, um, the goal of the practice.
2: Yes, yes. Well, we need to take a break. Um, my guest is James Kingsland. His book is called Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. He's been telling us about Siddhartha's journey, and when we come back, we're going to hear about his journey to enlightenment. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about We Are What We think. And my guest is James Kingsland, and he has been telling us about what what Siddhartha has been thinking, also known as the Buddha. Uh, He's the author of a book that just came out today called Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. So now that you've taken us on his journey, Siddhartha's journey, the Buddhist journey, um, tell us about your journey, how... As a science writer um, in the U.K. for 25 years, what, what got you interested in this?
3: Well, it, it goes back um, about five years when um, I discovered that um, uh, there was a Buddhist temple almost on my, my doorstep. Hmm. It's a Thai Buddhist temple, and it's in, uh, in Wimbledon. It's in a traditional Thai style, and there are eight uh, Thai monks living there and, um, a friend of mine took me there, and, um, it's a beautiful, peaceful place, and I learned that, uh, the, the tennis star, Novak Djokovic, uh, who does meditation, um, that's where he goes, um, before the, uh, uh Wimbledon fortnight in order to, hmm. uh, focus in his mind on, on, on his game, so, so, so that was interesting, and, um, uh, uh, my friend uh, uh, gave me a book about um, uh, Buddhist meditation, and um, out of curiosity, I, I, I started trying it. But but reading reading the book, I found that it, um, um, even as a as quite a sceptical uh, scientist, I found um, uh, a lot of it had the ring of truth about it. And the interesting thing about Buddhism is that you're not required to believe in a creator god, you're not, not required to subscribe to any particular creed and so um, as an atheist, uh, former Christian this, this seemed um, uh, just right for me
2: uh-huh. um,
3: and so um, uh, uh, since then I've, I've been on a meditation uh, retreat at a, another Buddhist monastery called Amravati and um, I, I interviewed the abbot there who, who said something remarkable to me? He um, he dropped into our conversation that um, uh, we are all mentally ill, which um, which took me back aback really. Um, but I think what he meant was that um, according to Buddhist philosophy, uh, the only really mentally well people are are fully enlightened. For the rest of us, we're we're all to varying degrees um, mentally unwell, and. Um, the interesting thing is that clinical psychologists are, are kind of coming around to the same point of view um, uh, because uh, traditionally we 've had distinct categories of mental illness such as major depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, but in fact they all they all share uh, the same uh, uh, symptoms in, in varying degrees, and those symptoms are um, uh, a part part of the uh, general population, uh, and we all experience them to a greater or lesser extent. Things such as uh, anxiety, paranoia, even um, hallucinations. Uh, um, so many people report having halluc- hallucinations at some time during their life. So, um, um, so mental illness isn't something that simply aff- afflicts uh, a particular group of unfortunate people. It, it seems to be part of the human condition. And uh, obviously some people are more vulnerable than, than others, but it's, it's really part of our common, common inheritance as, as human beings. And uh, uh, this monk, uh, Ajahn Amara, the abbot of Amravati Buddhist Monastery, um, he, uh, he expressed that very clearly when, when he said to me, uh, we're all mentally ill. So, um, so, so that, was, that, that was how my journey really started.
2: Well, can you explain... Um you know, what he meant by this, uh, uh he, well, you wrote, Buddhists believe that our minds create dukkha, the suffering or sense of unsatisfactoriness that is part and parcel of ordinary human existence. I mean, we all, you know, people... um people in in all different, like you were saying, um, Siddhartha started out in this almost perfect kind of world with where every need was and wish was catered to. Um, and yet he became it became unsatisfactory after a while. And um, certainly people are living in even are, are living in a lot worse c- situations. And so their life is um, unsatisfactory. But I mean, t- in t- in a varying degrees, no matter how much we have, or how much you know, possessions or status or wealth or whatever it is that um, uh, health, whatever it is that we have, it never is really enough. We we do um, uh, come to a point of unsatisfactoriness, or we're bothered by that. I guess what, unless you start to meditate, or unless you start to um, have, be more mindful of your life. Because the, the, could you tell us about the chant that you said at this monastery?
3: Uh, yes, yes, that's right. Um, uh, one of the uh, regular uh, chants at the monastery, which which is part of the Pali uh, uh, canon, is is uh, it says something like um, birth is dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word for suffering. Um, birth is dukkha. Um, sickness is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Um, not getting what we want is dukkha um, uh, uh, getting uh, getting things that we don 't want that 's dukkha, so in a way that 's saying life is the whole of life is mired in in, in suffering and um, uh, but the i mean that sounds very negative, but um, the, the point that 's being made is is that we have uh, the capacity within us uh, to make a heaven out of hell or. Or to make a, a hell out of heaven, as, as Milton said, um, it's really about, uh, as you said at the top of your program, it's about the um, the mind. Our minds shape our life. Um, the Buddha famously said, "Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think." And um, uh, implicitly, what, what what that means is is that uh, if if we can manage our minds, if we can Come to an accommodation with our minds and, and manage them, and manage them and calm them. We can change our lives. Um, but um, uh, going back to the theme of suffering, uh, the Buddhists they teach that the problem, the problem that people have is they cling. It's uh, it's clinging to to emotions, thoughts, and opinions and ideas, which causes suffering uh, because we're clinging to to things that are impermanent, to things that are ultimately un- unsatisfying. And so the, the key to, to reducing suffering is to, uh, to simply let go and uh, uh, let things be the way, way they are, to, to come to an accommodation with, with reality. And um, uh, the outcome is, is that we, we find our minds becoming more peaceful.
2: So when you um, started saying that chant... Um, I mean, is it kind of a? Is it kind of a? I mean, you you were just saying about how it seems kind of negative, and it does. I mean, is it is it that you're giving up um, the hope or the expectation that your life is going to be perfect, and so if you can say this chant, you know, all these various things that that, that is suffering, that is dukkha, um, that then you. You're, you're not disappointed? I mean, how, how exactly does that work?
3: Well, it's kind of liberating because um, uh, so many of us, we, we go through our lives in, um, in denial. We, we expect things to, to turn out fine. We expect uh, the things we enjoy to, to last forever, and um, we, we try to ensure that the things we don't like... Um, you know, we try and push them away, keep them as far, far away from our experience as possible. Um, but um, this teaching—it's—it's it's a kind of—it's kind of liberating because it's saying um, there are some things in life we we can't change: um, sickness, aging, and death. They're 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 realities of of life, and um, uh, often the the, the the cause of the greatest suffering is our refusal to. To accept them for what, for what they are, and, and to um, uh, to to accommodate them. Um, so the Buddha taught that um, that it's it's our, our our clinging to this to this uh, delusion of um, of permanence, um, which which makes our life so unsatisfying, um, which which brings um, you know such uh, such uh, disruption, such such uh, unpleasantness. Yeah. So, which
2: I guess goes along with the idea of mindfulness of sort of making every moment count by being fully present in it.
3: Uh, it it's all about um, uh, making the most of the the present moment without mm-hmm. getting caught up in our thoughts. Now, our 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 brains are they're incredible, uh, wonderful instruments that allow us to effectively travel through time. We can. We can speculate about the future. We can go back into the past. We can relive the past. Um, uh, We can can simulate um, the the mind states of other people. Um, uh, It's it's this uh, wonderful simulator that we we carry around in our heads. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, of course, it has its downside. Um, It's it's a great source of creativity. uh, But at the same time... um, it's constantly, constantly drawing us away from the present moment, mm-hmm. um, distracting us from um, from enjoying the reality of, of right here, right now. Um, and the interesting thing is, um, uh, research suggests that uh, our minds wander up to half half of all the time that we're, we're awake. We're we're thinking about something other than what we're mm-hmm. actually doing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so often, these these thoughts are are negative. They're uh, self-critical. We're worrying. We're we're um, um, we're musing about about the past. What, what might have gone wrong? What what might go wrong in the future? Um, so um, so uh, it's it's a bit like Twitter, really. I don't know whether you're on Twitter, but mm-hmm.
2: it's, yes.
3: it's a the constant bombardment of uh, of comment and uh, an opinion and uh, distraction.
2: Mm-hmm. And, um,
3: the wonderful thing about meditation is, and mindfulness, is that there, there's a way to um, to switch it off effectively, so that you become become more present, um, both for yourself and and for your for your loved ones, for your family, and for your friends.
2: So how um, so this this these uh, trips to the um, to the abbeys where. Um, that's where you first started to practice? Or you you mentioned that you had been reading about it. Were you able to just start doing it from reading about meditation?
3: Um, I was quite lucky, yes. I I, I found that um, uh, having read a few books about it, I I was lucky enough to come across some really good books. There was one by um, a Sri Lankan monk called Gunaratana, who wrote a book called uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, which was mm. a wonderful introduction to mm. practice. So I, I, I was lucky. Um, but um, for, for many people, um, it's good to have a teacher to, and to be um, in a group of people, for example, on a an MBSR course. So uh, that's a Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Um, that's a great way to start as well. Or, of course, you can, you can go to a monastery and you can... Listen to uh, the talks, and and they have meditation classes, um, and that's another good way to um, to start. But really, everybody finds their own way, and um, uh, uh, it's 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 up to you to, to try different things, see what works for you.
2: And how would you say that your life? Well, first of all, how much, how often do you do you meditate, and how would you say that your life has changed um, since you, you began?
3: Well I, I do my best to meditate for half an hour every day after, after breakfast, and um, um, I've been doing that for about uh, five years hmm. um, and uh, for me, from the start, it was kind of a revelation that um, it's possible to to calm the mind, to stop the, uh, the train of regular thoughts simply by by focusing on your breath, uh, the sensation of the breath at your nostrils coming in, going out of the body. Um, so that was a revelation for me because as, as a writer and a journalist, my mind uh, uh, previous to that was, uh, it was constantly stuffed full of words, a constant stream of, of words and thoughts and speculations. And um, sometimes I'd lie awake at night and I wouldn't be able to sleep because i i couldn't still my mind it was just mm-hmm. like uh, uh, a ticker tape you know uh turning uh, away mm-hmm. and, and so i i couldn't i couldn't relax but the wonderful thing about discovering um uh, meditation was was that um there was a way to um, to stop this happening and so as a result i reckon i'm, I'm sleeping better and um you know i i still uh, face the same stresses as everybody else but um I now have a way of uh, of uh, sort of turning turning down my reaction to those stresses and, and uh, developing a more equanimity. Uh, so um, so with luck, I mean, even though I'm still prone to anger and anxiety, the same as everybody else, uh, there's a way for me to um, to recover more quickly from from those uh, negative emotions.
2: Hmm. And um, have you noticed? Um Improvements in your health or not to say that there was anything I don't know if there was anything wrong with it to begin with but I mean have you noticed certain bodily um, effects feeling healthier in some ways
3: um, what's interesting you should say that because um, uh, about 10 years ago I was uh, diagnosed with a, a skin condition called psoriasis mm-hmm.
2: uh, which
3: is an inflammatory condition which is exacerbated by, by stress and um, since uh, uh, starting uh, my mindfulness uh, practice, um, uh, that that has been a lot better. It it seems to be a lot more under control. And in fact, there there there, there was a scientific study um, several years ago which suggested that um, mindfulness uh, was uh, was a, a really good complement to a uh, traditional um, ultraviolet therapy for, for psoriasis. Mm-hmm. Enhance the effectiveness of of that uh, conventional therapy. So, um, uh, in fact, any any condition which is exacerbated by by chronic stress, in theory, can be um, uh, ameliorated by by practicing mindfulness by by learning to uh, to better hand, handle stress.
2: Mm-hmm, Uh uh-huh. Well, and there's the music that we need to take another break. That's a perfect time. Um, when we come back, uh, my guest, James Kingsland, is going to talk about how science, modern science, uh, centuries later, have um, found that what Buddha found, uh, said Arthur, at that time, under the tree, <laughs> sitting by himself, uh, trying to find enlightenment, there actually now um, are scientific studies that indeed prove that um, these practices do have, there is a, a biochemical or a, a physiological, um, uh, medical, however you would like to describe it, explanation for all of these things, that in fact, um, you know, what what he discovered uh, through meditation um, and going on his own journey to enlightenment, actually now there's scientific corroboration with it. So we'll be right back. Again, my guest is James Kingsland. His book is Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking about um, the a new book that has just come out literally today, um, authored by my guest, James Kingsland. Um, it's called Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. We're talking today about we are what we think. We've been talking about that, and we're going to continue um, talking about how science, modern science, has actually um, proven some of the things that um, Siddhartha, a.k.a. the Buddha, um uh, was able to, what, come up with, with his own wisdom through, through meditating, um, and, uh, going on his own journey towards enlightenment. Now, what I, one of the things that, um, that's interesting is that the possibility, and there are some studies in regard to this, about meditation slowing the aging process. I think that that's one thing everybody is interested in. Um, now, I, what I found interesting in an article uh, that Mr. Kingsman wrote for The Guardian, um, where he's the science editor, um, it, there's an article called Could Meditation Really Help Slow the Aging Process? And um, he writes about how Buddha lived to 80, and, which was a, an exceptionally ripe old age in 5th century BCE India, <laughs> and that what ended it wasn't old age per se, but food poisoning. Tell us about how did the, how did the wise Buddha wind up getting food poisoned? Was he That's murdered? Right, well, or was, what?
3: According to the um, uh, stories, and there's a bit of a dispute over the translation of the words, but uh, uh-huh. one interpretation is, is that he was given uh, a gift of, of what may have been uh, uh, mushrooms, mushrooms, um, and uh, they they were contaminated in in some way and there's no question of um of foul play but um he was laid low by food poisoning yeah but he uh. he managed he he used um he used uh his considerable powers of mindfulness to to keep going for for several days he carried on teaching but um he was already an old man exceptionally old for his time as you say and so um according to legend that's what that's what finished him off in the end. But, sure. um, but you're right, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, uh, this, this latest piece of research suggests that um, uh, mindfulness um, increases the activity of a particular enzyme called telomerase, which is responsible for rebuilding the ends of, of chromosomes um, in our cells. Uh, every time our cells divide, the, the ends of the chromosomes get worn down a little, until eventually uh, they get worn down so far that the integrity of the cell is threatened. And um, so it usually, it commits suicide. But um, what telomerase does is rebuild the uh, chromosomes to allow the, the cells to go on living for longer. So, um, so that's, that's a fascinating uh, a piece of research. That may be another outcome of um, uh, reduced chronic stress. Uh, chronic stress is, is known to... To uh, accelerate the uh, shortening of, of telomeres these uh, these ends of chromosomes, uh, so so practicing uh, uh, meditation may by reducing chronic stress may indirectly uh, help preserve your your chromosomes
2: and um, there were there have been studies on comparing uh, people who were Zen uh, meditators and um, you know, versus people who don't meditate. And, um, what I thought one of the interesting things was that it also, you write, it all, this research also hints that the psychological factors underpinning the beneficial effect were that the meditators had a more compassionate, accepting outlook on life. I mean, there seems to have been, um, differences to begin with in the people who were doing the meditation, who, who chose to meditate. Compared to the, you know, non-meditators, um, in, in other words, that a certain type, a certain personality, is, uh, would would choose to meditate in the first place. What, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, that's um, that's a strong possibility. And um, uh, when when uh, scientists do this kind of research, they have to be very careful to to control for these possibilities. For example, the people who become monks or nuns or the people who take up meditation, they may have a, a different kind of uh, brain to to start with. So um, before we make um, sweeping claims about um, uh, the benefits of, of meditation, for example, um, slowing the aging process, which is a very bold claim, um, you have to account for this, this possibility that um, uh, uh, people start out with different brains in the first place they may have a predisposition to practice meditation. Um, so ideally, in the future, what you do is you, you set up a, a so-called longitudinal study. You'd, mm-hmm. um, you'd recruit volunteers and, you, and you'd uh, randomly assign them to two groups, one, one for meditation and one for, for doing a, an equivalent activity, whether relaxation training or whatever. Um, and then you'd you 'd follow these two groups of people over uh maybe several years and um, uh, look at the uh, the changes in their DNA the changes in their brains so that's that 's the best way to do this kind of study but of course um it 's beset with difficulties it's it 's an expensive kind of study and there are all sorts of um methodological uh, uh difficulties in uh In in making it work so um, for the moment all all we have is is cross-sectional studies where you you look at for example you look at people who have been practicing meditation for several decades and people who don't meditate but as you quite rightly point out um, there's a strong possibility that um, people who get into meditation already have uh, different brains or um, different physiologies
2: of course, for anyone listening to this who hasn't practiced meditation or hasn't done it um, any more than I have as far as dabbling, um, you know, making that commitment to do it would then put them in that category of people, so, I mean, it, uh, of choosing to do it, so it still would have the beneficial effects.
3: Do you, was that clear? Yeah, that's
2: right.
3: Um, yeah.
2: now I that's thought perfect, another. Yeah. Uh, go ahead.
3: So no, I was just going to say, um, certainly there have been uh, very many, many hundreds of studies involving um, the eight-week mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction course. Uh, mm-hmm. Eight weeks doesn't sound like very long, but um, it's long enough to detect changes in people's brains and the activity of particular key parts of the brain, um, and even changes in, in the thickness of the uh, cortex in, in particular um, key regions. Um, and uh, also changes in, in behavior, it changes in, in levels of um, self-reported stress and, and well-being um, and anxiety. So um, um, despite the fact that these, these longitudinal studies I, I was talking about, um, which might take several years, uh, despite the difficulty of setting those up, we can al- already say with some certainty that practicing um, meditation just for eight weeks can, can bring about discernible changes.
2: Mhm. And I thought um, in one of the studies, um, the uh, I'm just looking at your article. Um, the, the well, first of all, it's the, the the things in the cells that become longer by meditation are called telomeres, and um, and they found that. Um, uh, psychological traits associated with having longer tel- telomeres included greater mindfulness skills, life satisfaction, and subjective ha- happiness. But there were there were other things that um, were were they found specifically um, two things that were directly responsible for longer telomeres. One is called experiential avoidance. And the other is high self-compassion. So tell, I think I, I thought the experiential avoidance, you know, that, that fits with um, psychotherapy. It's kind of the same thing in the same way that psychotherapy works uh, um, in the sense that rather than repressing and denying um, the putting pushing into your unconscious uh, things that were unpleasant in your life, traumas uh, that you, you know, from the time that you're, that you're born and things happen that are that are emotionally painful and you want to forget them. And, and that takes a lot of energy for the mind to keep, keep these things in the unconscious. And so um, with, with um, and that's experiential avoidance, but with meditation um, you write that it involves turning one's attention towards unpleasant physical and mental experiences in the spirit of non judgmental acceptance. So in a sense, there's some, there's some parallels in any case between um, meditation and, and psychotherapy.
3: Absolutely, yes. Um, as you say, uh, it takes a lot of energy to, to re- repress these you know, un- unpleasant memories and sensa- sensations. And um, what I write about, one of the things I write about in my book is um, uh, uh, therapy for phobia called exposure therapy, which mm-hmm. involves... Actually, um, if you're if you're afraid of spiders, for example, if you're afraid of uh, public speaking, uh, the idea is that the the only way to to unlearn those habits of the mind is to slowly, uh, steadily, in, in small increments, to expose yourself to to the very things that that, um, that, that make you uh, that make you fearful, um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, uh, that's 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 how the brain relearns how it how it unlearns uh, the conditioned responses to uh, particular particular situations, whether whether it's the spider in the bathtub or having to stand up and make a speech in front of your colleagues. So, um, and it's very interesting the the parts of the brain uh, that's been found to be involved in this. Um, Uh, exposure therapy this unlearning Mm -hmm. of um, fear responses the same parts of the brain appear to be involved in uh, meditation Mm -hmm. Um, it's the it's uh, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex um, seem to be closely involved both in coming to terms with uh, the things that scare us but also in in uh, in meditation um, so it's uh, as as you say. Um, uh, psychotherapy uh, is all about. Um,
2: it's coming, it's like uh, facing your fears. They're both facing your that's fears. That's right.
3: Yeah. That's right. So so it's it's really interesting. These things seem to be uh, coming together, which um, uh, which 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 is fascinating. This this ancient wisdom, mm-hmm. and, uh, modern findings from psychotherapy and and neuroscience, they seem to be converging in, in one place. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's very satisfying.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, we're kind of coming to the end of the, our time, so I want to make sure that you have a chance to tell people about, um, in your book, you have, after each chapter, you have meditations. How, what is that, what would you want your readers, how would you like your readers to use that?
3: Okay, hey, yes, well... Um, uh, for people who've, who've never meditated and, and are curious and want to try it for themselves, um, I've got half a dozen guided meditations scattered throughout the book. So, example, there's one for um, uh, focused attention meditation, uh, for concentrating on your breath, which is, is a, uh, a fundamental practice um, for many of these things, for, for developing concentration. And then I've got uh, uh, the... Um, uh, the body scan. I've got a meditation for for uh, uh, developing loving kindness and compassion. So um, uh, anybody who wants to try this out for themselves, um, they they can do that. And um, as the Buddha said, in, in the end, uh, you have to go by your own experience. You uh, don't take anybody's word for it. Um, give give things a go. And if if they uh, if they reduce your suffering, well, you know, carry on. Uh, um, uh, you know, make a commitment to do a bit of meditation every day, but um if it doesn 't work well you know that's that 's okay too you know, try something else
2: mhm mhm well, let me make sure that I give out um how um if you would like to find more of um, Mr. Kingsland's writings, you can go to his blog, which is called plasticbrainblog.com, plasticbrainblog.com. And, of course, you can buy his books, The Author's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment, uh, where books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, your, your independent bookshops, and so on. Well, thank you so much. This is really—you've gotten me back into the. Uh, I think I will try it. I'm going to be. Um, your, in The Great. beginning of your of your book uh, got me. Uh, it was a good tease. It got me, you know, interested, and I think I'm going to be continuing with it. And oh, I'm so glad. Um, <laughs> and thanks and for having t- me
3: on on your show. It's been a, a pleasure.
2: Well, you're very welcome. I mean, you know, everybody can really find a half an hour a day. It really, you know, to say we spend, we waste much more than a half an hour a day. So all of you out there can do that. Imagine if the whole world started meditating. Uh, I mean, I guess that was in a way the Buddha's wish. But imagine if we were all meditating. What there, you know, the violence would be gone, and uh, this would be a lot better place. Well, thank you so much, James Kingsland, and thank you all. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.